It is March 2010. I just turned 41 years old. I'm sitting at home alone, letting it sink in that for the first time in my adult life, I am unemployed. The plan that I've been working for the last 20 years has been obliterated. And worse yet, I have no real idea what I'm going to do next. Roll back the clock to August of 1996. That's when I started to work as an attorney at Klein Williams Wright Johnson and Old Father. <laughs> Largest firm in Lincoln, been around forever, and the name sounds really cool. So I was fired up. I showed up there on day one. They hooked me up with a suite office up on the 17th floor of the U.S. Bank building. Great views of that spectacular Lincoln skyline. Got my very own second. That was a joke, by the way. Thank you. It's not spectacular. All right. Got my very own secretary. Nice big old plant in the office. I mean, it was, it was awesome. Fantastic. Uh, day two, I show up. And I decide that, you know, it's not really enough just to be an attorney. I need to become a partner. Not just a mere associate who's an employee, but someone who owns a piece of the action, who helps run the business. So I set about over the next few years doing all the things I needed to do, working hard, cranking out tons of those billable hours, assisting partners with their cases, working my own cases, getting my own clients, attending all kinds of firm functions, and five years later, I was voted into the partnership, which gave me a new title, John L. Horn, Esquire, Partner, Klein Williams Law Firm. Ah, oh, yeah. Such a nice ring to it, don't you think? That was 2001, and at that time, my home life was also good. I had an amazing wife, Tina, who I'd known since junior high, we celebrated our 10-year anniversary that year. Two awesome kids, a son, Jordan, a daughter, Jessie, who would have been in elementary school there. We lived about five blocks from their school, nice suburban home, peaceful little cul-de-sac. Uh, my wife was able to stay home with the kids, lots of moms and other kids in the neighborhood running around, so just very idyllic little existence. We were also very fortunate to have a great church that we were involved in. Tina and I led a home fellowship group with other married couples in it, basically the same as a Mosaic Life group. Worked in the children's ministry there, later in the youth group, served on various committees. Tina even worked on church staff for a while. So basically we were really plugged in there, and, and it was a big part of our lives. So if I'm doing my plan A checklist at that point, I'm going to say career, check, family, check, Spiritual life, check. Looking good. I like that. Yep, right on track. However, over the course of the next few years, things gradually changed. I found out that making partner at the firm didn't make things any easier. In fact, it just added more responsibilities and more stress to my life. Had a bigger role in firm administration and firm management. Had a number of clients that got a lot more demanding, expected me to be at their beck and call, had to travel a ton more. But I think if you would have asked me at various points along that way, 
whether I had a healthy work-life balance, I probably would have said, yeah, sure, I, I think I do. But in reality, the career side of things had started to consume way too much of my time, attention, and energy, and a lot of that was on me. I was making poor choices. I was driven by pride in a lot of ways because I wanted to be a big deal. I wanted to make my partners and clients happy. I didn't want to let them down. So I started to worry more about what they thought than my family and friends. And over the course of six, seven years of being a partner, my priorities had gotten really totally out of whack, to be honest with you. And if you would have come to our home on a regular weeknight, it would have resembled a Dawn of the Dead movie because I was the lead zombie and not the cool, scary kind. I was the mind-numb, boring kind that just kind of shuffles around with this glazed look on his face. I'd get home from work and just have very little left in my tank, just not much motivation, not much energy to invest in my family, friends, even in ministry. So, basically, things were not good. And I somehow even managed to spoil family vacations. I remember one particular trip to New York City where Tina, Jordan, and Jesse actually had a sighting of world-famous, critically acclaimed actor David Hasselhoff. I kid you not. And because of some work-related distraction, I missed it. Missed it. David freaking Hasselhoff. I mean, the Hoff, baby. Unbelievable. I just could not unplug myself from what was going on at the office. Which brings me to October 11th, 2009. I was extremely sick with what I thought was the stomach flu. I had a fever that was going up and down. It was spiking as high as 104. I had the chills, headaches, all kinds of stuff going on. But I also had something going on the next day in Lansing, Michigan, some hearings, some meetings with one of my most important clients to close a couple deals that we'd been working on. And I had been to Michigan four times that year alone, and I was bound to determine I was going to be there for number five to get those deals closed. So, despite my wife's strong objections, I got on the plane. What we did not realize at that point was that I had contracted the H1N1 virus, also affectionately known as the swine flu. And by that point, because I had been too stupid to do anything about it, it had made its way up into my brain and caused encephalitis, which is a fancy word for a, a brain infection. So, me and my swine flu arrive in Lansing, Michigan, and we check into a hotel. I get up bright and early the next day, and I, I decide, you know, what would make me feel better? Go out for a nice jog in the crisp, cool Michigan fall air. And so I go out, and who knew, but exercise and encephalitis just don't mix. And I started to have seizures, epileptic seizures, while I was out jogging, something I had never had before in my life. God was obviously looking out for me because somehow I made it back to the hotel. I got on the phone, I called Tina, and I said something like, I don't know who I am, I don't know who you are, but I know I need help. 
And she made arrangements to get emergency personnel in there. Uh, I was in there with my jogging clothes with vomit and blood all over. The seizure had caused me to bite down on my tongue and was just bleeding profusely. They take me to the hospital, and they start to work on me to try to get the seizures to stop. And they can't do it. This goes on for several days. I just continue to seize. My wife, who was up there by then, in her infinite wisdom and, and uh, decisiveness, says, hey, we're life flighting this guy to Mayo Hospital in Rochester, Minnesota, where they specialize in neurology and epilepsy issues. So they get me to Mayo, and the specialists go to work on me, and they're trying everything in their power to get the seizures to stop, and even they can't do it. So several more days go by, and they finally say, okay, last-ditch effort, we're putting this guy into a coma. And so they do that, and by God's grace, the seizure stopped and essentially saved my life. So I get back to Nebraska. I start to recuperate, try to regain my strength, and slowly work my way back into the law practice. First time just kind of working from home remotely a little bit. Then I'm bouncing into the office here and there to the point where by January 2010, I'm back in the office with full-time office hours. But it didn't take long to realize that the law practice of John L. Horn Esquire was not the same. I would have existing clients on the phone, and I would have absolutely no idea what they were talking about. Discussions we'd had recently, they'd be referencing, projects we're working on. I'm just going, okay, what, what is this dude talking about? Sometimes I wouldn't even know who they were. And so I'd be looking over at my files, rifling through them feverishly. Okay, okay, what are we working on? Who is this guy? It was a horrible feeling. Other times I'd be working at my desk and working on a case and some legal issues involved, and I'm looking at it. I'm going completely blank. Like, hmm, and this is something I probably would have dealt with countless times in the past, something that was right in my practice wheelhouse, and I just, I, I don't know, I don't know. So I either research it from scratch, or I walk down the hallway uh, to one of my partners and ask them for the answer. On one occasion, I do that, and my partner, Dick Garden, looks up at me with this expression on his face that says, you're kidding, right? No, Dick, I'm not. Just give me the answer. Let me get back to my office. So I, a couple months into that, faking my way through things, and I realized that I have got to get out of here. I don't have a choice at this point. I'm going to drop an enormous malpractice bomb on somebody and have a major problem. So I didn't want to do it, but I didn't have a choice. I stepped away, left the firm, left my practice. Turns out that eight-plus days of seizures are not good on a person's brain, and mine had sustained pretty significant damage, particularly to the left hippocampus, which governs memory function. And there was two major problems that were created by my brain damage, the first of which I call my black hole issue. What that is, there's a period of about five to seven years, roughly, before the incident, where there's chunks of time that the memories are just erased. Whatever events happened in that black hole period, they don't exist in my mind, not there, gone. The second problem is short-term memory issues. I can't retain information as it comes in. I meet someone new, I have a discussion with somebody, uh, an event happens, an experience happens, and within days or a couple weeks, maybe a month or two, 
it's eliminated. It, it doesn't get retained in the memory banks there. Just give you a few examples so you kind of know what I'm dealing with here. On the black hole piece, uh, my family, including myself, lived in an apartment complex down in Williamsburg for five full months in mid-2009 while we were waiting for a house to be built. To this day, I have absolutely no recollection of ever having set foot in an apartment in that complex. Nothing. In a black hole. Uh, another example that hits a little closer to home here, uh, Mitch Cohn, who goes to church here, he and I have known each other for years, going back to when we attended a different church together. He and I apparently were doing a book study of some kind for a number of months, meeting for breakfast, working through this book prior to my incident. And there again, an experience that for me never happened. Not there. A couple months ago, Mitch was kind and gracious enough to remind me about that. Say, yeah, John, we did this, this thing. Oh, wow, man. To this day, I think I've finally come to the conclusion that I blame Mitch for everything that's happened for me. Yeah, his fault. And, and here's why. The book we were doing, which he picked out, was called Sidetracked in the Wilderness. That's where I ended up. Thank you, Mitch. Appreciate that. And in the black hole periods, they go back, like I said, five, seven years, roughly. So just about once a week, at least, something will come up. Someone will say something. And I'll just say, wow, I don't remember that. Sorry, that, that must be in one of my black holes. With respect to the short-term memory piece, uh, just a couple examples there. Uh, movies really are, are the best example I can come up with there because I'll see a movie, and within two months, it's as if I never saw it. I don't remember what it's about. I don't remember the characters, nothing. My daughter loves to give me crap about this because every time... I'm flipping through the channels, and the movie White Chicks is on. I'll stop, and I'll watch a couple scenes, and I'll just laugh my butt off. I'll be like, I have got to see this. This is great. And she'll just go, Dad, you've seen that movie a million times, and you always say the same thing. It's like, hey, at least I enjoy it. I mean, use it to your advantage. Wrap up a DVD. Give it to me for, for a birthday. Wrap the same thing up. Christmas, birthday, I'll be just as happy. Come on. Work with me on this. So those are the main thing I'm dealing with. Uh, let me throw in one other short-term memory. This is even more bizarre. Uh, I come back from a, a Walmart run, my weekly Walmart run, and I pull out a particular brand of apple juice from the bag. And again, my daughter's right there and says, Dad, what are you doing? You vowed you would never buy that kind of apple juice again because they're ads or commercials feature that Marsha Cross lady from Desperate Housewives. You can't stand her. <laughs> like, really? I said that? That's weird. Okay, well, I pledge again. I'll never buy that random apple juice. And guess what happens a month later? I bring home a certain kind of apple juice. And to this day, I don't know what it is I had against Marsha, but I guess the world may never know. But anyway, back on a serious note, it was those short-term memory issues that really kept me from getting back into the practice of law, which brings us kind of back to that March 2010 period when I'm sitting at home alone, having just turned 41, fully aware that I'm not the same person that I was mentally just a few months ago, fully aware that I'm not getting back to my chosen career, and fully aware that lawyers, frankly, don't have a lot of other marketable skills. So I'm, I'm kind of sitting there 
a man without a plan. Then something very interesting happened a couple months later. I wake up one morning with something very vividly etched in my mind, and it's the words, pastor slash entertainer. Pastor slash entertainer. And yes, the slash was in there. It wasn't a dash, it was a backslash. I vividly recall it. And i got to be honest with you, I didn't think much about it at first. I didn't mention it to anybody because I've been known to have some pretty, super funky, vivid dreams, wake up with just random, off-the-wall thoughts bumping around. And I hesitate to share this, but uh, I once dreamed that me and Aaron Loy were in a boy band together. <laughs> yeah. And we were good. Yeah. I don't, I don't really want to delve into the subconscious of what, what's going on there or why I, I dreamed that, so we'll, we'll leave that one alone. But the, the bottom line for me is because there's all kinds of disturbing things that always happen in my mind, I, I really didn't think much about pastor slash entertainer, whatever. But then within a couple days, I'm sitting at the breakfast bar in the kitchen, and Tina walks in, and she says, you know, I think you should be a pastor entertainer. Excuse me, what? Yeah, you should be a pastor entertainer. I was so freaked out. Like, you have got to be kidding me. Same two words. Did I mention this to you? No. What are we talking about? Same two words, same order. Now, granted, there was no slash in there. But it was pastor entertainer. And so, uh, I really think, I'm fully convinced to this day, that God used that kind of bizarre circumstance, divine coincidence, whatever you want to call it, to give me some kind of hope in my heart that he had something for me down the road and stop me from getting discouraged and jumping off the ledge. Four years removed from that, well, let me back this up because this, this is important. Tina, in addition to it being weird that she put the same two words in order, she never would have used those two words. Raise your hand and nod if you agree to describe me because... Tina's back there, by the way. <laughs> because first of all, she worked at a church, as I mentioned, and she even said back when she worked there, you could never work in that environment uh, on staff. She basically knows I'm way too crass, way too irreverent, and I don't have a filter. So you can't work in a church. Well, maybe I, maybe Mosaic might be an exception. but So that, that's not something she would have said about me. And then the entertainer word, was just as weird because I had literally never heard her use that word in any context. It just wasn't something that was in her lexicon. So I'm, I'm four years down the road. I'm not a pastor. No one's calling me Pastor John, but I can tell you this. My life is more about relationships now than it ever has been. It's more about people than projects. Without my law practice looming over me and taking up all my time, all my energy, I actually have time to spend with people, invest, connect, reconnect, get to know them. We're talking family, friends, high school buddies, old college guys I haven't seen forever, former bosses, you name it. I just, I have time. I've been able to work with some mentoring programs, working with kids. I've done a little bit of prison-related ministry. It's been tremendous. And so, to me, God has a plan for me in that area, and I've tried to follow through with it. In terms of the entertainer piece, I can't say that I've ever actually entertained someone, 
But I can tell you I've spent a lot of time working on projects that are intended to do that. I published a murder mystery novel called Heady Waters. I wrote a screenplay, a comedy screenplay called Rabbit Trails. Most recently I wrote a pilot episode for a, a TV sitcom. Uh, done some stand-up comedy in various different venues. Got to front my buddy's rock and roll band, which I don't know what he was thinking. Everybody let me do it. So, at a minimum, I've entertained the heck out of myself. So I am an entertainer in that sense. But one, one other interesting little side note on that. The very first money I ever earned doing the freelance writing thing was from a company called Gramify, which was in the business of making voice grams. They're now defunct, so they didn't do it very well. But a voice gram was basically a, a pre-recorded message with a celebrity impersonator on it that you could buy and then send to a friend with a birthday message or just a mess with them, whatever. And the first scripts they asked me to write were for the cartoon SpongeBob SquarePants. So I wrote a few of those, and I, I got paid. Got this nice check here. Memo line even says, scripts, SpongeBob. Framed it. I thought, oh, this is the first of many checks that are going to start rolling in. Uh, I was jogging one time. After I got this, and I was just thinking about it, all of a sudden this memory pops into my head, which is weird in and of itself that I actually had a memory, especially because it was about three years before the incident. It was a memory of being at a Klein Williams attorney luncheon, just sitting at this table with a bunch of other lawyers. A partner of mine named Kevin Schneider is sitting immediately to my left, and completely out of the blue, completely out of context, he turns to me and said, you should write for SpongeBob. Didn't mean anything at the time. I was like, okay, whatever, Kev, thanks. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. And, and he really had no reason to say that. It's not like I was doing things that would let him to believe I was going to write for a kid's program. I, I didn't have a poster of Squidward hanging in the office or anything. Uh, but he said it. And there again, I just think that was a little piece of something, of affirmation for God to give me to just say, you know, John, I've, I've got you doing some things that I want you doing. So, I think the bottom line for me is that oh, God wants to use me today, and it's simply a matter of, of me trusting him. And I still deal with the epilepsy stuff on a daily basis. I'm on three very strong anti-seizure meds. I've had a number of breakthrough seizures over the past four years or so. But I'm getting better at identifying some of the, the triggering events, one of which is competitive activity. Anything I do where I've got to compete with somebody, it, it sets something off. So if you invite me to a Yahtzee party or a foosball tournament, I blow you off. It's not personal. It's not you. It's me. <laughs> uh, and then I've still got the memory issues on the short-term basis. I can't retain information very long. But I think God has used some of the skills I employed as a lawyer to help me there. Uh, what I do is I take detailed, copious notes of every personal interaction I have. So let's say if I'm talking to you, having a discussion, or going to lunch with you, when I get home, I will write down as many details as I can from that conversation. And I mean, I'm talking anything. Your hometown, your pet's name, what you had for lunch, how you like your eggs. I mean, it's ridiculous, but... And the reason I do that is because next time I get together with you, I want to be able to review those notes 
and pick up where we left off. And I don't want someone thinking that I completely blew them off and, and wasn't listening. So I'm up to 400-plus pages in that bad boy. And I guess my word of wisdom to you would be, be careful what you tell me. <laughs> it's going in there. Yeah. But I would say the hardest part for me right now isn't the physical or, or mental aspects of the epilepsy. It really deals more with how I feel about myself sometimes, just the thoughts and the questions and the doubts that, that will pop into my head every now and again, feelings of guilt. The meds I'm on cost Three grand a month if you had to pay full price. So we need, from a financial standpoint, the very best prescription benefits under health insurance that you could possibly get. And my wife, Tina, was fortunate enough to get a job that has that high-end prescription benefit plan, which is great. I'm totally thankful for that, but there are times when I'll feel guilty about that. That's something... I used to provide for my family. I would go out and get the benefits. So, so pride will kick in and mix with that guilt. And then pride also comes into play sometimes in feelings of inferiority. I'll go to my daughter's tennis match at 4 in the afternoon, and other dads will show up, and they'll have their suits and ties on. I'll be sitting there with my tank top and shorts and flip-flops. And I'll look over at them and say, wow, look at those guys. I used to be me. I used to be a big deal. Now look at me, I'm pretty much a bum, a loser. And then there are feelings of doubt that come in where I question whether the things I'm doing today really matter. Me and friends might go to Matt Talbot or the gathering place, serve a meal. Maybe I spend a couple hours playing basketball with my mentee kid. And shortly thereafter, sometimes I'll get this little voice in my head that will say, that stuff's meaningless. You're, you're not having an effect on those people. I mean, you can't just spend an hour or two here and there and have any real impact. But what's happening when I have those thoughts is that I'm making it about me. I'm making it about my plans and how I think things should look. And I'm selling God short. I'm lacking the faith to believe that he can do literally anything, that nothing is impossible for God. It's his plan B. It's not mine. He has me where I am right now for a reason, doing what I'm doing for a reason. And so really my challenge every day is just to try to listen to God and to let him remind me that this is his plan for me. He has me right here, right now, doing what I'm doing, and I simply need to be faithful to do my part. And just to wrap up here, I am incredibly grateful that God had a plan B for me. I recognize that it's still a work in progress. But I truly believe that God will be with me going forward. And I just need to trust him and follow him wherever he leads, whether that's a plan B, plan C, plan Z. Band's on its way up, so... Let's go ahead and and close in prayer, if you'd bow with me. Father, we all like to drop our own plans.
for how we want our lives to, to play out, but God, each one of us at different times in our lives will experience things that are not part of what we planned or, or what we want to see happen. I just pray that when those things happen, that you would help us bring our feelings of anger, and bitterness, and disappointment to you first. And I just pray that you would help us to fully understand your promise that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you are with us even when those unexpected things happen. I just I pray that you would help us draw close to you in those situations rather than pulling away. And just to take comfort in your promise that regardless of what things come into our lives, that you're able to take those things and use them for good. For those of us who feel like we're lost or we don't know what we're supposed to be doing with our lives or what we're we're supposed to head in the future, just pray that for guidance and for direction, that that we'd make time to spend alone with you and, and in your word and have open eyes and an open heart so that we can better know where you might be leading us. God, I just ask that for all of us, more and more, we'll we'll grow to understand more fully that our lives aren't as much about us as they are about you, and that the more we seek to make our lives about you and the things that matter to you, the the more you're going to reveal yourself to us, the more we'll understand what your plan for our life really is. And I just pray that you'll give us humility and the courage to ask you what our plan is is what your plan is for us and the strength to actually live it out once you reveal it. I ask this in Jesus' name.